0: We've been on the high and choppy seas with Paul last week. We will continue this story today. The poor guy's been out there for a week now. But I have likened this storm, like many stormy passages in the Bible, to our spiritual storms, uh, storms that life throws at us. And I have to admit that I, I don't like doing that. I don't like taking taking oft. Uh, I guess, repeated teaching points. Especially when it seems to be taking a reality that really happened. We really know, profess, and believe that Paul and company were threatened with their lives here. And then we turn it into another story altogether. However, Paul himself also tells us that He comforts us in all of our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we receive ourselves from God. And what I see in this is that we do see pictures of suffering through the Scriptures. And much like we might deduce lessons of faith from maybe the trials of Abraham, God helps us. To hopefully, God help us to never be presented with the weird command of sacrificing our son. Nevertheless, we, we trust and receive insight in trusting God when things don't seem easy to trust Him. So we might also learn from the trials experienced through stormy weather and shipwrecks of these people. Perhaps we might learn spiritual lessons that we can apply to our lives. Paul had been charged wrongfully And had been before kings and rulers who were making no rulings for fear of upsetting his accusers. Prestigious uh, Jews in Jerusalem. So Paul, a Roman citizen, appealed to have his case heard before Caesar. Thus we begun in Acts 27, the sailing trip from Caesarea Martima, which is the capital of Judea. For the Romans, for the Romans, that is, and he was sailing all the way to Rome. Now they headed out in the fall. Stormy weather, choppy seas, and the sailors ignored warnings just like we might ignore warnings in our storms of life. We'll ignore others around us telling us that "Mm, you're, you're headed for troubled waters. After ignoring warnings, the crew headed out into the heart of the storm. And I believe the same word that was in Um Todd's reading today was also used last week in our scriptures in Acts 27. It's the same Greek word from where we get typhoon. And they had to unload half the ship. And before too long, the storm was such that they just couldn't even tell day from night. No moon, night, or sun, or stars due to the overcast. And they all felt certain that they were going to die. Until Paul got up and he gave God's encouragement. Though Paul had been the one issuing the warning before, stating that everyone was certain to die if you head out into the storm. Paul now says, Now I urge you to take courage because there will be no loss of any of your lives, but only of the ship. Acts twenty-seven twenty-two. Because God had revealed to Paul that he will stand before the emperor, to make his defense. And because of that, God was graciously sparing everyone on the boat. Reminds us of Noah, where everyone outside his boat drowned. But those on the boat with Noah were safe. That's kind of where we were. I do invite you to stand, if you're able, one more time, in honor of hearing the Word of God in Acts 27, beginning with verse 27. We'll read to the end of the chapter together. When the fourteenth night came, we were drifting in the Adriatic Sea. And in the middle of the night, the sailors thought they were approaching land. They took a sounding and found it to be hundred and twenty feet deep. When they had sailed a little farther and sounded again, they found it to be ninety feet deep. Then, fearing we might run aground in some rocky place, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight to come. Some sailors tried to escape from the ship. They had let down the skiff into the sea, pretending that they were going to put out anchors from the bow. Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut the ropes, holding the skiff, and let it drop away. When it was about daylight, Paul urged them all to take food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have been waiting and going without food, having eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for this has to do with your survival since not a hair will be lost from the head of any of you. After he said these things and had taken some bread, he gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. They all became encouraged and took food themselves. In all, there were 276 of us on the ship. And having eaten enough food, they began to lighten the ship by throwing the grain overboard into the sea. And when daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but sighted a bay with a beach. They planned to run the ship ashore if they could. After casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time, after loosening, at the same time loosening the ropes that held the redders. When they hoisted the foresail to the wind and headed to, for the beach, but they struck a sandbar and ran the ship aground. The bow jammed fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to break up with the pounding of the waves. The soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners so that no one could swim off and escape, but the centurion kept them from carrying out their plan because he wanted to save Paul. So he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to follow, some on planks and some on debris from the ship. In this way, all got safely to land. Let's pray. Father, uh, your word is weighty, it's powerful, you've preserved it for generations for reasons to teach us, we know. We trust that the Holy Spirit who wrote these words is present now, uh, translating these words into our hearts and minds to grow our faith, to be more like Jesus. So we pray that I would not be the one speaking, instead that you, Holy Spirit, would have complete say over the things that are stated here. Holy Spirit, we, we invite you into our hearts to receive these words and, and use them for your glorifying Jesus. And help us to build our faith today. Help us to be yielded and submitted to you in all that you say and do. We ask and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The author of Ecclesiastes, which might not be a good book to take out of its context. Nevertheless, in his his view of under the sun, which sometimes people have taken to take as a frame of reference that doesn't posit God into the picture, life under the sun, the author of Ecclesiastes sees our lives as fleeting days with struggle under the sun. For man certainly does not know his time like fish caught in a cruel net or like birds caught in a trap so people are trapped in an evil time and it suddenly falls on them. It feels like our lives can be one long struggle. Certainly depending on our time and place, some have it worse than others and the author of Ecclesiastes makes room for that. All that to say that in our struggle of life in our storm of life i found that our movements through this text have been applicable both in life's storms but perhaps even in just life generally after god has given encouragement to the sailors we know that paul had a few companions on board thus a few christians but he also just gave encouragement likely to non-believers they're going to live And after this encouragement to everyone that they will live, we see three more movements, beginning with man's manipulation, followed by spiritual preparation, and then lastly, solid ground. Man's manipulation, spiritual preparation, and then solid ground. First, in verses 27 through 32, we see man's manipulation. When the 14th night came, so that's two weeks. We don't know. But I'm assuming since they left port from Crete, we were drifting in the Adriatic Sea. Now, in today's contemporary terms, the Adriatic Sea refers to a smaller expanse of sea between just Italy and Greece. And perhaps where Paul and everyone is might be called the Ionian Sea today. But back then, the Adriatic Sea maybe just had a bigger geography to its borders. But we read... And in the middle of the night, the sailors thought they were approaching land. Maybe they heard waves hitting breakers. Maybe they, from what light there was, they could see changes in the water. Verse 28, they took a sounding and found it to be 120 feet deep. When they had sailed a little farther and sounded again, they found it to be 90 feet deep. Then fearing we might run aground, in some rocky place, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight to come. Some sailors tried to escape from the ship. They had let down. Them... Oh. These sailors, sailors, hear that, that specific word. These are the, the steerers of the ship, the people who know how to move and navigate the vessel. They're planning to board a lifeboat for themselves and make it for land, leaving the rest of the passengers to fend for themselves on how to get to the land, to the beach, safely. Paul said to them, said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut the ropes, holding the skiff, and let it drop away. So the plan fails. Now, Paul had told everyone that there would be no loss of life among them. Although he had said the ship must run aground on some island. Regardless of what Paul had said, just like there are doubters, skeptics, and those who would be indifferent today, so there were back then. And these folks are out only for one thing, to be saved themselves and to accomplish it themselves. Again, we're told that these are the sailors, the ones who handle the boat. They're kind of necessary. When storms come, sometimes it's easy to think about oneself, one thing, yourself. (laughs) And then to seek all the means of control that you can to make sure that happens. These people had no regard for others on the ship. They knew what they were doing was wrong, hence they're doing it under the pretense of something else. Maybe they reasoned to ease their guilt. Well, he said the ship would even run aground and everyone would be saved, so it probably matters little that we leave. The ship can still run aground. But it could be, just in case if this ship didn't run aground, what if the storm happens to take us over? What if, what if we're hit and sunk? And these sailors have a little plan B up their sleeve. And no, it doesn't involve everyone. It just involves saving their bacon. Sometimes I think you and I might be moved beyond fear to realize how little we control in life. How little. The evangelist John says the whole world is under the sway of us. No, the evil one. Paul says that there is a ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. And it's interesting, God likes to show up, make promises, and then test us to have faith, right? Abram, you will have many descendants, you old goat. Old goat is not implied in the Hebrew, but... But then they must wait, and wait, and wait... And wait, they did just fine, right? No relapses of faith. no, Abram and Sarai hatch a plan. Well, God didn't give us the rest of the info because he expects us to come up with that part, and Sarai gives Abram her maidservant Hagar, and there there comes Ishmael. Is he the promised son? No, Isaac is, and Isaac comes through Abram and Sarai, even though they're old. We want control, we like. Routine. I like the fact that I can look forward to coffee and Jesus next to Christy every morning. And these sailors have been in a storm for so long and they're told they will survive. In fact, the news sounds so good, some decide I don't care about the rest of the crew. I will make sure I will survive. But Paul stops them. They have the skills that this boat needs to make sure we all survive. Have any of you ever felt like running away? at a vital time, just to save yourself? Who are you depriving life of when you do that? When a storm, a crisis, a problem comes and it's overwhelming, how is God calling you to minister to others? What I love is how this story progresses. These men have just tried to jump ship, leave others to fend for themselves. Paul makes sure they don't get away with it, but then we hear no stories of disciplining them, Retribution, No, how could use. Sure, I'm sure that existed, but Luke didn't record it. What we do see, though, is Paul encouraging famished, empty sailors to eat and prepare themselves for the coming shipwreck. But Luke uses very particular words, I believe, to remind us of a very common and significant symbol in the Scriptures. Let's pick it up at verse 33. When it was about daylight, Paul urged them all to take food, saying, Today is the 14th day that you have been waiting and going without food, having eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for this has to do with your survival, since not a hair will be lost from the head of any of you. I think Paul had to make that clarification. He says, this isn't the last meal you're going to eat. (laughs) This is so you have energy. After he said these things, now listen closely to these words. And he had taken some bread. He gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. They all became encouraged and took food themselves. And all, there were 276 of us on the ship. Let's not downplay, like some of my commentators seem to try to do, the choice of words that Luke uses here. In the Last Supper, Luke records it this way. Same author in Luke 22:19, And he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So what is Paul doing? Is he having a so-called communion service right there on the boat? Is he really just saying, hey, eat a little bit? And are we overthinking and overplaying Luke's choice of words? Here's what I liken it to. There's this interesting passage in Mark 8. Some people may forget or not realize there's actually two feedings of fish and bread in Jesus' ministry. We see a feeding of fish and loaves in a Jewish crowd, thousands of people. Interestingly enough, 12 baskets are left over, one for each tribe of Israel. Then we see a feeding of Gentiles, another large crowd. Interestingly, seven baskets left over. Number of completion. Every Gentile is allowed to come to Jesus, but then there's this kind of this after episode for the disciples. And oh, what do you know? It happens in a boat. And after they get on the boat, Mark eight fourteen gives us this interesting note: they had forgotten to take the bread and had only one loaf with them in the boat. You catch on to the weird wording of that. It's almost like he's making two opposite statements. What is it? Mark? Did they? Forget to bring bread, or was there only one loaf of bread? And some wonder if Mark is referring to Christ as the one loaf with them in the boat. Paul writes in in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17, the bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body, for all of us share that one bread. So certainly by this time, even when the Scriptures are being written, Christ is referred to as the bread or the loaf. And the passage in Mark would go on to reveal that the disciples are really concerned about their lack of bread. And Christ brings up those two feedings and he asks, do you, do you not get the picture? And from Mark's story, I believe it's revealing that Christ is present with them. They'll have enough to eat. They'll be fine. In this presence of Christ, I believe is what we should see back here in Acts, that Christ is present on the boat. He's been present for Paul, letting him know that they will survive, and in the breaking of the bread and nourishing of bodies, he is present. And friends, if your boat is about to go down, take time to commune with Christ. Because he's present. He's present. I don't know about you, but as for me, I can't say that I've ever had a time where I've really made space, I've really sought the Lord, I've really quieted my soul, I've prayed, I've read scriptures. I don't think I've ever had a time, if I've been genuine about it, where I've come up empty-handed. I've never said, well, that was a waste of time. I've had plenty of times where I've rushed it. I've said a few quick words. I open up the Bible and halfway through my read, oh yeah, Lord, speak to me. And then, Lord, I have a schedule. Let's get this over with. I've had plenty of times where my heart was half in it, and lo and behold, I had nothing to show for it. But if people treat you like that, you respond about the same, don't you? If it's evident that you're just an afterthought, they don't really want to be around you, they just want to use you, you're not going to show up and be present for that. But if your proverbial ship is going down, it's a great time to worship. It's a great time to approach the throne of grace. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. Just a quick side note, and this is deviating from my my notes, but uh, whenever I come across a, a verse like this, I get insecure about my translation of Bible. And I said, what do you mean at the proper time? It's in the time of need. I went and looked up the Greek. Proper time is more close to the Greek. (laughs) But in our time of need still works. Paul invited Christ into their eating before the ship went down to satisfy and to fill them. They were encouraged, all 276 of them. This suggests that they may have been a medium-sized grain ship, weighing about 340 tons. Now, this particular ship was picked up in Mira, which is north opposite of Alexandria, Egypt. That's likely, it is the origin of the grain ship. They said it was a ship of um, Alexandria. And these ships would carry grain from Alexandria to Rome. And finally, out here, far off course, battered by the storm, we read... And having eaten enough food, they began to lighten the ship by throwing the grain overboard into the sea. This is now just a rescue mission. Their cargo and their paycheck is no more. They're just surviving by running the ship aground. The ship's going to wreck anyway. Carrying the cargo to Rome from wherever they're wrecking, they don't know, is likely not realistic. The wheat... Actually, if it had stayed on board and gotten wet, would have expanded and ruptured the ship and the hole from the inside out. So uh, they had enough dangers ahead. This one could be avoided. The plan is in full swing. But I want us to see, regardless of what the pagan seafarers took this time as, as eating with Paul, I believe Luke reveals for us it was just as much a spiritual preparation as it was sustenance. And the simple fact that empty-bellied soldiers and sailors and survivors need energy for what they're about to do, we know, as Christ says, it is written, man must not live on bread alone, but on every word of God. So in your storms of life, are you spiritually prepared? Jesus tells us sometimes, whenever we receive His Word, there are ways in which we can receive that Word, if not on good soil, that can be detrimental to our faith. He tells us the story of His seed and His Word are like seeds tossed onto different types of soil. You know the story. The seeds along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the Word from their hearts so that they might not believe and be saved. Just like birds eat seeds set out in plain sight. And the seeds on the rock are those who when they hear welcome the word with joy. Having no root, these believe for a while and depart in a time of testing. Just like seeds on rock that might wither without moisture. And for the seed that fell among thorns, these are the ones who when they have heard go on their way. And are choked with worries, riches and pleasures of life and produce no mature fruit, just like seeds that spring up in plants around thorns only to be choked. How's the foundation of your spiritual life? How's the soil? You know, we open with Ecclesiastes, and that author also says in there, he says, There is a futility that is done on the earth. There are righteous people who get what the actions of the wicked deserve, and there are wicked people who get the actions of what the righteous deserve. I say that this, too, is futile. And I bring this up because sometimes when storms come, I've seen, I've heard, I've counseled Christians who say, why is this happening to me? Why is God doing this? Because it's his fault in a fallen world under the sway of the evil one where there's a ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. I know God is in ultimate control, but let us not forget what he permits for his reasons, and one of those permissions is evil at times for testing. That's what the devil means. It can mean accuser, but also sometimes he's called the tempter or the tester. Maybe God is seeing what kind of of soil his word fell on. Are you spiritually prepared for the storms in life? Is the word down deep taking root? Is the Holy Spirit invited into your life so that you might feast on him sufficiently? Paul and company found time to do it in a storm on a boat as they were about to brace for shipwreck. I mean, I would probably even scoff unrighteously at the... Like, what are you doing getting communion elements out? We're about to go down. Do you have a daily Bible time? Prayer time? Do you engage in reading His Word? Do you make it to Bible studies before church on Sunday? Do you do a little more than just read a few verses, check a few boxes in the week? How about this? Are you answering what He calls you to do in your life? You mean generally? Yeah, generally. And I say this often, open up Hebrews 11 to see what discipled faith births, and I can guarantee you it's not people who read the Bible, say they believe in Jesus, go to church on Sunday, and that's it. In fact, oddly enough, I don't see any of that in there. I see people who said yes to God, and that led to action. Moving to the land of promise, having children when it was unexpected to, answering tests God called them to, hiding a baby from an abortion edict, Returning to the strongest empire on earth to free slaves. What is your spiritual preparation? When God calls you to task, what will you do? Will you be able, willing, trusting? What's your faith like? The promise of God to Paul was that everyone would make it. But the ship would have to run aground. Now we see that come to pass here, picking it up in verse 39. Um, when daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but sighted a bay with a beach. They planned to run the ship ashore if they could. There is a suggested stretch of land on Malta. Guess what it's called now? St. Paul's Bay. But I don't think it looked exactly like this. There's a lot of tourists. and Yes, but I believe that is St. Paul's Bay. Verse 40, after casting off the anchors. Verse 29 told us they had had four keeping the boat in place. They left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that held the rudders. Now, in a storm like that they had just faced, they would have actually had to pull the rudders out of water and tie it down on the ship. But now they're putting them back into the water. Then they hoisted the foresail, that's the small sail in the bow to guide the ship. They hoisted it to the wind And headed for the beach. Verse 41, but they struck a sandbar and ran the ship aground. The bow jammed fast and remained immovable, but the stern began to break up with the pounding of the waves. The ship's going to break under this, so now it's time to move. The sandbar has the ship, but it's probably still deep water whenever the sandbar drops off on either side. Verse 42, The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners. So this includes Paul and maybe at least his companion, a guy named Aristarchus, as whenever Paul gets to Rome, he's going to write a few letters and name Aristarchus in them, Colossians and Philemon. He says he's a fellow prisoner of the Lord. But the soldiers want to kill the prisoners so that no one could swim off and escape. In Roman law, if prisoners escaped under your authority of a soldier's watch, the soldiers would be held accountable with their lives. Now, some have pointed out and said, well, it's a shipwreck, and certainly the soldiers would be absolved. Maybe. But the soldiers didn't know at this point who would be hearing their case, and there's plenty of power-hungry, bloodthirsty rulers. And um, they might just simply say, but you're here, and they're alive too, and they're not here. So, (laughs) but they're likely just doing what's to be expected. Let's kill the prisoners. It's a shipwreck. Everybody's leaving. But... The centurions kept them from carrying out their plan because he wanted to save Paul. Julius, the centurion, seemed to have treated Paul specially throughout this journey. We see in verse 3 that he let Paul, a prisoner, go and see his friends. A prisoner, allowed to wander. Apparently Julius trusted Paul, and with good reason he came back. In verse 11, we read Julius ignored Paul's advice, and now they suffered the storm for it. But now Paul's words from God about everybody being spared in the storm is coming true. We don't know if, centur- if the centurion was just treating Paul like a good omen. Maybe he was going to follow in the step of Cornelius, like before him, another centurion, and become a believer. Or he could just be he likes Paul. But he spares Paul... And perhaps not to look too unmerciful, he decides to spare all the prisoners. So he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to follow, some on planks and some on debris from the ship. In this way, we got all got safely to land. And in this way, God's word was fulfilled. So my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do, says God. God said it would happen. All 276 people would reach solid ground, and they did. About Hebrews 11, we were talking about that, and it opens with a well-known definition of faith. It says, now faith is the reality of what is hoped for, and the proof of what is not seen. These words, reality and proof, have weight to them. Tangible weight. Faith, faith that God gives us, the faith that we can have in God, can have weight in, in substance. It's knowing something is going to happen. All that weights is embracing it and experiencing it. Unlike man's plans, where James tells us we don't even know what tomorrow will bring, instead we should say if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Unlike man's plans, God's plans, His purposes, His promises that are obtained by faith are as good as done, real, tangible, accomplished the second He speaks them. It is a reality already, a proof already. And so when he planned and purposed that Paul and the ship's passengers would all arrive safely, it was already done. They were already on solid ground. Do you hear that? Here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking it primarily because I've been talking to myself in this message. And that's this. What are you waiting for? Wherever you're at, whatever you're facing, if there is angst, questions, fears, unknowns, uncertainties, what are you waiting for? It is safe to land. It's safe to head for shore. God has promised it. He is faithful. It's all on Him. It's not on you. So what are you waiting for? I'm reminded of this scene of God with Moses, and God had been faithful, and God had been patient. From the very moment that God had called Moses. Moses was I can't speak, I'm not adequate. Fine, here's Aaron. They get to Egypt. Let God's people go, Pharaoh. No. Plague one. Still no. Plague two. Okay. Just kidding, no. Plague three. No. Plague four. Yes, fine. Wait, I take it back. Plague five. Plague six. Plague seven. Plague eight. Plague nine. Death of the firstborn. Plague ten. Leave, take God's people and go, get out of here. And after all that, after all that, all those plagues, miracles, wonders, not only is it audacious that Pharaoh organizes his army and starts to chase the exiting Israelites, but what is this? What is this in Exodus 14? The Israelites are barking at Moses, it's what they do best, Isn't this what we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone so that we may serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. But Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the Lord's salvation. He will provide for you today. For the Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You must be quiet. But then look at this. This is where it gets me. Look at what the Lord says to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to break camp. I love this. Why are you crying out to me? So asked God to Moses, who was being pursued by a group of angry, revengeful, spiteful Egyptians. Reminds me of a Jesus who asks, Why are you fearful? In the middle of a horrific storm aboard choppy seas. Something tells me God knows why Moses cries out to him or why the disciples are afraid enough to wake him. God knows. But do you know it's safe to land? What else does Jesus say on the boat? That's the point. Why are you fearful, you of little faith? It's what Jesus says that other time on the boat with his disciples worrying about bread. He said to them, Why are you discussing that you have... No bread, do you not yet understand or comprehend? Is your heart hardened? And he said to them, don't you understand yet? Understand what? He is faithful. He is trustworthy. What he says he will do, he will do. He will provide bread and fishes out of nothing. He will provide land for a ship of 276 passengers with nothing but a lousy sandbar and a beach with nothing to anchor on. He will swallow an army up in the sea. He will see 12 fearful disciples across a raging stormy sea in his sleep. Because he is faithful. So what are you waiting for? It's safe to land. I don't know if you're human like me. I just wonder if there are some tasks in your life. Maybe they look like Hebrews 11 tasks in their own little way. Maybe they're kind of big. And it's like you're on the precipice. You know what you got to do, but you don't do it. You'd rather be preparing life rafts when nobody's looking than to wait and see if God's going to land the boat. What are you waiting for? What are you wondering for? Why are you fearful? It's safe to land, amen? It's safe to land. Let's pray. Father, I would be with the Israelites yelling at Moses even after all of those plagues. Well, here is where we're going to die. I would be with the disciples who have seen you do miracles. And here you are sleeping in a boat that's about to tip over. Certainly this is where Christ will let me drown. You are faithful. You're trustworthy. 700 years before Christ was around, you penned the words that, So shall my word come forth from my mouth. It will accomplish for which I sent it. And the word became flesh, and he accomplished what you sent. And every word that you speak proves true. You are always trustworthy. There's never been a time where Jesus got that one wrong. You are very trustworthy. So, Father, what are we waiting for? Help us to trust in you and to trust in everything that you send us to do because you are faithful. We ask for this faith, Holy Spirit. Would you please grant it to us? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.